Thanks, Nick, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here uh, in the sanctuary and online as well. So glad that you could worship with us on this beautiful rainy Mother's Day, very appropriate for the Pacific Northwest, that we receive all these showers of blessing. After yesterday was perfect, today's cloud, it's okay. Last week, uh, I wasn't with you because I was participating in the marriage of my youngest daughter, and now, here's the good news, all three of my children, marriages, done. Isn't that great? So uh, there's something liberating. I don't know why, but it's good. And it was, it was a great wedding, but it's very good to be back with you. For what is a very important text, so please take a moment and uh, pray with me as we look at the text together this morning. Father, thanks so much that we have the privilege of gathering here within these walls, listening for your voice, and we ask now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would not just give us information. Our desire, Father, is to represent your heart in our actual living beyond these walls, at work, our families, with our neighbors, with our enemies, with our friends, in the midst of fear and want and oppression. Would you shape us and fill us and use us to further your purposes in the world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We start with a, like a physics uh, axiom, and it's really not an axiom, it's a theory, but it's a pretty widely accepted theory that the universe is expanding. And, and if you've studied science, you may have heard of the Big Bang Theory, which begins with all matter confined to one single point, and then uh, where this Mary's theology, I believe, is God spoke, and everything began. Everything was set in motion, and there was this gigantic explosion of matter now moving out of the universe in waves and continuing to this day to expand according to most who uh, subscribe to physics and theories of origin and that kind of thing. Uh, and the reason I share it is because there's actually a similar concept in the scriptures. And it's, uh, it's, the, it's in a sense, the big bang of uh, God, God's reconciling plan. And it's all focused on that cross right there, right? On the cross, Jesus says something very profound. He says, it is finished. It is finished. And of course, it doesn't appear finished right now. But what happened then is the, is the finishing work of Christ begin to work its way outward into the, all the universe. And if we go ahead to the end of time, we read the story regarding the end of time in many places of the scripture, but kind of a summary statement is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, which says this. At that point, it says, uh, the, the end of all things is, and then this is the quote, the summing up of all things in Christ. So if you can imagine... The entire universe, saturated with the glory of God, that's where history's headed. And so uh, if, you, if you ever take airborne, right, you drop in the little fizzy pill, and then eventually it saturates the entire little six-ounce glass of water with the thing. But at the beginning, it's not saturated. You drop it in, and there's a pill, and it's doing its work, but you don't, it's not yet saturated. And, you, and then so you, do, you brush your teeth, you go back, and it's better, but there's still a pill. And, and eventually, though, the pill is gone and everything is the pill. Every, imagine a universe in which everything is the heart of Christ. <laughs> Where's disease? Gone. Cancer? Gone. Human trafficking? Gone. Refugees? Gone. Alienation? Loneliness? Gone. War? Gone. Every tear dried uh, from every eye. His, that's where his, we're told that when Jesus said it is finished... 
that reconciling work began and is continuing to this very day and will continue till the end of history so that waves and waves of reconciliation, forgiveness, and new life are pouring out from the cross. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and the waves just keep going and going. Waves of reconciliation filling Ted Cruz's Texas, Hillary Clinton's uh, New York, Donald Trump's towers, reconciliation in Seattle, in Syria, in Saudi Arabia, in, in, in Uganda, wave after wave of grace, imparting hope, forgiving, freeing, liberating, inviting people in God's story, every act of terror, a global reminder that we're not made for this, we're made for peace. Every oppression, a reminder, we're made for freedom. Every lonely person in the room this morning, an understanding, we're lonely because we're made for intimacy. Our calling as Christ followers is not simply to enjoy freedom and intimacy and healing, but to be agents of such in the world. We're called to bless the world with this declaration. It's finished. The good work has begun and waves of glory then expanding into our universe through us. It's pretty remarkable. But here's the challenge. Though the universe is expanding, the church is shrinking, not expanding. In the West anyway, and other places as well, but certainly in the West, shrinking. Uh, <laughs> next group, student ministries, some exodus going on, right? People grow up and then they turn 18 and they're out. Or 24 and they're out, or 30 and they're out. It's a problem. Um, but not just young people, everybody. Atheism on the rise. And a new category, particularly in our part of the world, uh, what do, uh, the, the, not the majority, but uh, the, plural, the plurality, like what's the biggest category? Nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N-S. I mean N-O-N-E-S as a spiritual category. Like what do you believe? I don't believe anything. Well, why would anyone not believe anything? Well, there's <laughs> good reasons. Because though the gospel is, I need my cup. Though the gospel is gigantic, we often try and squeeze it into a, like a, a cup this size. You say, oh yeah, yeah, you know who God loves? These people in here, look at them. They're, I mean, they're holy and obedient and wow. Don't you want to be one of them? Yeah, I think there's room. We squeeze, we squeeze you in, come on. That's not the gospel. <laughs> but uh, in, a, in, a, in a world uh, where the church is mischaracterized as being more for what, uh, known more for what we're against than what we're for, perhaps we need to reconsider that what is the true nature of the gospel? And that's one of the things we see in this text this morning. So we're going to be looking at this Acts 10 passage and three truths that reveal just how expansive the gospel is. And we begin by seeing the mosaic limitation. The first truth is the mosaic limitation, the nature of the law, how it limits. The second truth is the activating source of, a, of this new covenant that moves away from the old way, the mosaic uh, law, to this new covenant. And the third, we see, you know, as we conclude, the larger framework, what God is doing, where history is headed. So, mosaic limitation, new covenant, where history is heading, uh, the larger framework. We're going to look at all three of these. We begin with the mosaic limitation. And then here, so here's the story, right? We're in the book of Acts, and uh, by the time we get to chapter 10, there have been this, there's been this movement going on. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, 
uh, look, you'll be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, far corners of the world. And now we're getting out to the far corners of the world by the time we get to Acts chapter 10. Uh, the gospel is moving away from Jerusalem, and the guy who will come to Christ in Acts 10 and 11 is Cornelius and a bunch of Gentiles, and they become actually representative of the Europeans who come to Christ, right? So that's, that's what's going on. And, and uh, Cornelius and the gospel move north now, even as the eunuch moved the gospel south to Ethiopia. Now, uh, so how will God bring the gospel to these Gentiles? And the answer is he'll bring it through Peter. And what's interesting here is we're going to pick somebody to share with a Gentile. He wouldn't pick Peter. Why? Well, here's the problem. Peter's Jewish. Right? And so he's living under, to some extent, under this old covenant. And this old covenant, we read it. Jews, John 4, Jews have what? No dealings with Samaritans. And, and, no de- and by expansion, no dealings with Gentiles. Jews have no dealings with Gentiles. And one of the reasons that they don't uh, share fellowship is because Gentiles eat different food than Jews. And I can't, if I'm Jewish, I can't eat your food. I can't. I may want to, but I can't. So, uh, there's this wall, and we saw the temple. There's, you know, there's the court of women, the court of the Gentiles. You know, there's ex- there's walls keeping people out. <clears throat> the gospel, small, right? And so, uh, God is going to now share the good news with the Gentiles. But He's going to to use a Jew to do that. I've got to get this Jewish man to to engage with the Gentiles. How do I do that? I've got to I've got to make I've, I have to let him know that. It's okay for me to eat with you. That's, that's what I have to do. So how does that happen? Well, Peter has a dream, okay? So Peter, the fisherman who denied Christ, he's now preached, 3,000 people come to Christ, good things are happening. He's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He's traveling to a city by, because of a vision, and he falls asleep on a roof because he'd gone up there to pray at noon. You know, it's noon, it's the Middle East, it's hot, you're tired, you fall asleep, probably. And it says he fell into a trance. You, you could argue, is it a dream? Is it a vision? It doesn't really matter. The point is, God spoke to him somehow. And, and he's up on this roof, and here's what happens. He sees in this vision or dream or whatever you want to call it, verse 11, he sees the sky open up, and a great sheet comes down from heaven, lowered by four corners to the ground. So Peter's looking up, and there's a sheet coming down from heaven. It's coming down. And when he, then when he can see what's in the sheet... It's four-footed animals, crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And these are, we'll know in a minute, animals that Peter is forbidden to touch or eat by, according to Old Testament law. He can't, he can't eat these things that are in the sheet. So he has his vision. And all this stuff comes down that is actually, he's been trained that this is repulsive to him, right? It's not just, oh, uh, whatever. It's, it's repulsive. It's disgusting, right? So it comes down, and then a voice came. To him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat this stuff. Eat this stuff. Now, imagine. I mean, here's what's going on. God is, God is asking you to do something that you would never, like, not only would you not have done it, but it's against your law. It's against all, everything in your moral fiber. Does this make sense to you? Like, you're repulsed by the thought of doing it, and God says, hey, it's time. Now, I'm telling you, I want you to kill that pig, and eat that meat right now. And so, and Peter says, my paraphrase, no way. No way. Why? He says, it's in the text, 
He says, I have never in my entire life eaten anything unclean. So why would I, do, why would I start now? No. And so here's what's going on. <laughs> Peter appeals to Jew... Hear this. Peter appeals to Jewish law as his reason for disobeying God. Isn't that interesting? Like, yeah, I know you're God and all, that's cool. However, I have the law, and the law has said, and so I know now, I know what's right. Boom, I will never eat that meat. So he has the dream not once, but three times as God's way of saying, look, this isn't because of what you ate last night or because you're tired or because it's hot. Three times, get up and eat, get up and eat. Three times he says it, so that you know that you know that God has spoken to you about eating unclean meat, unclean according to God's law. So if you're Peter, watch, this is what happens. Your head explodes. (laughs) Because you grew up learning that this was wrong, and now suddenly God is saying, I'm telling you, there's something here. I want you to eat this meat. So, so what's happening here is God, God is uh, moving away from the understanding of laws, hear this, laws that separate. God's moving away from the laws that separate. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, God's plan was to reveal God's character through a nation, one nation, nation, Israel. And he began with Abraham, right? So God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, look, Leave your land, you know, come follow me, and this is God's promise. I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a, the model is centripetal. In other words, you as a nation, imagine a nation here, and more peace, justice, prosperity, freedom, and beauty than any other nation. Everybody's drawn in. They want to know what's going on. Queen Asheba comes all the way from Ethiopia to visit Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. She says, uh, Solomon, I have questions about, you know, how is it that the world works this way? I, I love your country. What is it about you? And then here's her concluding statement, 1 Kings 10. She said, when I heard your answers to my questions, saw the beauty of your gardens, saw your wisdom, saw your wealth, saw your peace, saw the justice with, the, with which you treat people, that there's nothing like it anywhere. Her concluding statement, blessed be, not Solomon, blessed be Jehovah, and Jehovah is the name for the God of Israel. In other words, let me paraphrase. Queen of Sheba says, now I know who the true God is. <laughs> Why? Because you're awesome. That's my word. <laughs> it's amazing. Centripetal. People are drawn in. The light is shining, and like moths, not to be killed, but to come and get life, <laughs> like moths, we're drawn to the light, and, and it's life-giving, right? So that's, that's, that was the vision. So the law is given so you can live in a way that, ma- that, makes you, that separates you from everybody else. That's why God gave the law. But of course, here's the problem. Though God gave the law, we don't keep the law very well. Never did. Israel didn't keep the law very well. But this created, this system of separation was necessary in the moment. If I'm going to reveal through the nation, the nation better look different than anybody else. <laughs> Hence the law, right? Now, this is a stop along the way in God's unfolding plan for humanity, but not the ultimate destination of how God will reveal. Because we're now in an age not of centripetal, but centrifugal, going out, right? So God doesn't reveal now through a nation, but we're in all nations, and we're, we're scattering out around the world, crossing social divides, bringing the revelation of God's character in our lives and our lives together. Uh, but, but the law in the old system was intended ultimately, I mean, it, it, 
it separated, but it, was, it had a second intention that we understand by reading the book of Galatians. The law, the intention of the law was to show us that we can't keep the law. Isn't that interesting? Like, why did God give the law? Well, yes, to say this is, what, this is God's character. I mean, you're made in God's image, right? You're called to display the character of God. God's not a liar, so uh, don't bear false witness. God's not a thief, so don't steal. God's all about life, so don't kill anybody. God's perfectly faithful, so don't commit adultery. God, God, uh, God is self-content, so don't covet. In other words, you don't look like God, follow the law. And then you'll be an image bearer. All good, all true, except for one thing, we fail at doing that, right? Like we know not to covet, but we covet. How come I only have so many Twitter followers and you have 10 more? What's up with that? Come on. Why did my book only sell 50 copies and yours sold whatever, 8 million? How does that happen? And then we compare. We do. All of us do. And it's not just coveting. It's, it's violence. It's pride. It's dishonesty in little ways. It's theft in other ways. I mean, we, could, we don't have time to go over the Ten Commandments this morning, but we fail. So, so that's a thing. And yet the point is to see that we fail. Because as soon as I know I'm broken, healing can begin. That's the deal. So the law... Don't blow away off, don't blow off the law. No, no, take the law more seriously because the law will reveal your brokenness. And that's the starting point of your own transformation. I'll give you an example. Uh, last Sunday, I wasn't here. I was skiing uphill uh, with my nephew, son, and daughter-in-law. It's called tour- ski touring. You ski up and you peel the skins off and you ski down. But skiing uphill is a lot of work. I don't know if you knew that because it's uphill. And so we're skiing up, and I often do this on my day off alone, or with people my age or older than me sometimes even. I find these weak people, and I go with them. <laughs> and it's so good for my ego, because I'm like this. Man, I'm, you know, I'm pretty healthy. I'm 60 years old, and I'm skiing up here, and I'll, sometimes I even do my watch thing, you know, and, and ah, yeah, to the top, you know, a thousand feet in... 45 minutes, I'm amazing, and I think I'm healthy, right? Then I go with, you know, a 29-year-old, a 30-year-old, and a 27-year-old. And I'm like, I'm breathing, and I, they're trying to talk to me, and I can't talk because <laughs> I'm exhausted. And even though I'm exhausted, they're even waiting for me. Does this make sense? And they're having these leisurely conversations as they, I feel like they're running up the hill, and I'm not, and uh, so, I'm, you know, it looks like this. We start together and then, uh, wait, and then we get to the top and I'm exhausted. And, and at the end of the day, it was all fun, all good, good fellowship. And there was also a revelation. I'm an old man. That's the revelation. Like I thought I was, you know, like when I ski alone, I'm amazing. And I'm the best athlete on the mountain and, the, you know, every, no one can keep up with me and that's fine. On a Tuesday in the rain when there's no one there, I'm the fastest guy on the mountain. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work that way when I'm skiing with 30-year-olds, and it's a revelation of the gap between who I'd like to be and who I am. Does this, are you hearing the illustration? This is the law. God didn't give the law to condemn you. He gave the law to expose to you that you're a broken person. That's why God gave the law. It says it in Galatians uh, chapter 3. The law is a tutor instead of bringing you to Christ. Can I I'll just say for a moment here, we don't use the law that way often. 
Rather, we use the law to say, I'm in, you're out. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm good, you're bad. I'm high, you're low. And when we use the law that way, we're actually operating the old covenant, not the new covenant that God is revealing here to Peter. And we're using the law actually to divide and create a moral high ground. And one author says this, amongst the monotheistic religions that have their roots in the Old Testament law, Judaism, Christianity, and to a lesser extent Islam, this is what he says, those three monotheistic religions do not have a history of creating harmonizing people. In general, peacemaking, nonviolence, Love of the outsider or the poor, humility, dialogue, uh, these have never been the strengths of these religions who have their roots in the law. And it's true, right? Historically, colonialism, slavery, the greatest war in the history of humanity between Protestants and Catholics, the 30-year war in Europe, I mean, all the bloodshed coming from people who love God and know the law. How does that happen? It's because we don't... Sometimes we don't move on from the Mosaic Old Covenant and God is saying to Peter, you have to move. Otherwise you're stuck in a dead religion. You have to move. So that's why God gave the law. It's to get us to move. So we see, oh, I can't keep the law. Now what's interesting here is this kind of brings us to the activating source in verses 15 and 16 in the story. So watch Here's what happens. By no means, Lord, after being told to eat this meat, by no means, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And then God says to Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So I know that you've heard this your entire life, but now what God has cleansed, don't consider it unholy anymore. It's not unholy. That's a huge paradigm shift for Peter and what he's... He's, what he ends up having to learn here is that God is moving into this new covenant. And the new covenant is explained for us uh, in this way. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, look, there was an old covenant. Do this and live. There's a new covenant. But now, I want you to see, it's kind of important you see this for just a moment. When we go old and new like this, we tend to think chronologically as if uh, God snaps his fingers one day and now... Uh, this is blown up entirely, and this now is, um, is, is the new thing. No, the new has always been in the old, and the old will remain in the new. So this is why this sermon takes, it's hard to explain, but follow me just for a second. It's very important. The new has always been in the old. What do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. The life of faith, even all, all the way back to Adam, has never been about performing. It's always been about receiving. And receiving is this new thing. We receive. We're broken and we receive. But it's always been there. <laughs> Adam sins, and what does God do? Die, sinner! <laughs> no. He sins. He's filled with shame. He runs. He hides. God chases after him. And the, first thing God, the very first thing God does is he covers his shame. And he says, by the way, I'm making provision uh, for, for you for reconciliation. Yeah. Is there, are there consequences? Yes, there's consequences. But you, all you need to do is receive. That's it. So God's coming with Abraham. It's the same thing. God says to Abraham, hey, leave your country. And then this is what God says. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. You will be the father of nations. I will bring you back to this land. Like this land that I've given you, I will bring you back. Genesis 14, Genesis 12, God says it over and over again. I will, I will, I will, I will. I will. 
Not if you obey me, I will. I will even if you disobey. That's God. And then, to, like to reinforce the point, in Genesis 28, if you know the genealogy, it goes Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob. So Jacob then, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, is, uh, he steals a blessing from his brother. Too much story to tell, but I'll just say it here. He steals it, obviously, if he steals it through theft, you get that. But he steals it through theft and deception and impersonation, right? Theft, deception, impersonation uh, from his brother. So now his brother gets mad, says, I'm going to kill him, going to kill Jacob. So Jacob's running. So I've stolen from my brother. I've lied to my dad. I've pretended to be my brother. My, my dad asked me if I am my brother, and I said yes. I impersonate my brother. It's all, the whole story is filled with deception. Like, how am I doing at representing God's character? Terrible. Now I'm on the run. My brother wants to kill me, and I'm in the desert. I fall asleep in the desert. I'm afraid of what's going to happen next. And in that setting, what happens? Not a sheet from heaven now, but a ladder with angels coming up and down. And God speaks to Jacob. And what does God say? Loser, I knew you'd lie. Can't trust you as far as I can throw you, buddy. I'm done with you to find a new brother. We're going to make a nation that works. Like, come on, people worthy to be in. Do you understand? Like, I, that's what I would have said. Because I, like I grew up in a performance environment. Did any of you grow up by any chance in a performance environment? Maybe some of you work in a performance environment. I can't imagine that, if that would ever be true. But like, yeah, come on, do it or get out. Because this is where the strong hang out. So here's Jacob. God comes down. And instead of any of that, what does God do? I will bless you. You will be the father of nations. I will bring you back to this very land, this promised land. You'll go, but you'll come back. I'll be with you every step of the way. And you, you, you will be a blessing to other nations. I'll bless you. You'll be a blessing. You'll be a father of nations. I will, I will. There's seven I wills. To Jacob, the liar, thief, impersonation artist, I will. That's the gospel in the old. Does that make sense? The new in the old. So... <laughs> It's always been, even when we come to the law in Exodus 19, the Ten Commandments, and it's even in the law, the gospel. Because before God gives the Ten Commandments, God says to Moses, hey, let me remind you how we got here to Mount Sinai. Let me remind you. Remember when you were back there um, uh, in, in Egypt, uh, things got hard and the people, they hated you and they said, we wish you'd never come. But I stuck with you and I took you out of Egypt. And then you ended up against the Red Sea and the army's coming and the people said to you, Moses, they said, man, you're a terrible leader. We wish you'd die right now and we'd go back to Egypt and be slaves. We'd be better off eventually dying of old age than dying today. Why'd you ever bring us here? But I delivered you anyway, in spite of your lack of faith. And then you got into, into the wilderness and when you were thirsty, you went to Moses and said, Moses, you're a bad leader. You brought us out to kill us with thirst. But I gave you water anyway. Rather, You doubted, but I gave. You wanted food? I gave. You complained about leadership? I gave. You complained about the woman that Moses married? I gave. You fought? You bickered? You complained? Uh, I gave anyway. So now I'm giving you the law. So you can understand the gap between who you are and who you're meant to be. But it's, look, I'm with you, man, because this is about grace, not performance. It never was about performance. 
Our capacity then to live the life for which we're created comes not from like trying to get inspiration from a moral code, but in the new covenant that Peter's entering into, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, uh, God is going to make a new covenant. In the new covenant, God says, the law is not on tablets now, but the law will be written where? In the human heart. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you will go to Awana and memorize the Ten Commandments. It's not what it means. What it does mean is now Christ will dwell in you. This is, the, this is the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 1.26, Christ lives in you. The resurrected Jesus is not sitting up in heaven rooting for you. He, he's not a coach. He's the player. Wed with you in union so that your strength is his strength. Your joy is his joy. Your wisdom is nothing less than the wisdom of Christ. That's you. <laughs> so do you have what you need to live the Christian life? Absolutely, because there's only one person who could ever live it. His name is Jesus. And you are, by virtue of the resurrection, you're united with Christ. That's the new covenant. But that doesn't dismiss you from moral living. It empowers you for moral living. That's why the old is in the new. In the same way that the new is in the old, the old is in the new. So we're called not to use the law as a club to go, look, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm in, you're out. I'm up, you're down. The law is to show us our own moral failings, so that now uh, we live a life of dependency on Christ so that Christ can be in and through us so we know we're incapable of being on our own. And when we live that way, all the glory goes to God anyway. We're not self-righteous anymore. We're living a life we know we can't live. So the point of eating meat, we come to discover here in this story, isn't about the meat. It's about a changed relationship with the law. So that now Peter is freed because of of Christ living in him, he's now freed to move away from this ceremonial law about clean and unclean and have fellowship with a Gentile and go and go and have a meal at this house. And so then when the Spirit sends him to this house, he goes and he, and he walks in and here's Cornelius. And now what this, boy, if you think the meat was a challenge, Cornelius is someone I would never speak with. Why? I'm Jewish, he's Gentile. That's number one. Number two, um, I'm the occupied, he's the occupying power. He's a, he's a Roman soldier. Come on, like, <laughs> you're for gun control and he's head of the NRA. Come on, let's just have a meal together, right? He's, a, he's, he's violent. He hangs people on crosses. My Savior's hung on a cross. I'm supposed to hate him. And I'm told now to go into, into this house and there he is, he greets me at the door. Hey, Peter. I had a dream about you. I knew you'd be coming. And, and this Roman soldier, the king of execution, bows down to worship Peter. Is that crazy? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So what happens? Huh, I'm glad you asked. Watch this. This is a great story. So, so he, he goes, and Cornel, verse 25, Cornelius meets him, falls at his feet, and worships him. He's worshiping Peter. Peter says, Oh, don't worship me. I'm just a man. And then, so Cornelius brings him into the house, and he finds in the house many people assembled, and, and you don't know the story, but they're all waiting for him because Cornelius had this vision, Peter's coming. So he's, he comes in, and there's a whole household of, of Gentiles, probably a bunch of Roman soldiers, waiting for Peter, who hates, or historically has hated <laughs> Gentiles and particularly Romans, and particularly Roman soldiers. And now here he is, 
and, 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 and uh, uh, Cornelius says, hey, here, have some bacon, right? <laughs> That's the situation. So, so, what happens? This brings us to the third and final observation. There's a, there's a larger framework here. That's, something powerful is going on, and this is it. The crux of the story is in uh, verse 27, 28, 29, and in my opinion, one of the crux verses of the Bible. As he talked with Cornelius, he entered and found all these people assembled. So Peter, verse 28, Peter says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew, that's me, to associate with a foreigner or visit him. That's all of you, <laughs> right? You know, you know. And yet, this is powerful. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now I'm going to read that again very slowly. God has shown me that I should not call any person. Do you hear me? Any, no person should be called unholy, unclean. How are you doing at that? Oh, yeah, you know, no, I get it, Richard. I mean, yeah, we shouldn't call anybody that, but they are that. Just, well, don't call them that. Oh, no, why would God... Show Peter that. Here's why. Because when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, you know what happened? First John chapter 2, verse 3 happened, and that's this. Christ became the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins. Read it. For the sins of all of humanity. In other words, let me, let me put it a different way. Who's God mad at? No one. Why? Because what Christ did on the cross covered every sin for all time, all our brokenness, all our disease, all our war, all our trafficking, Look, we're perpetrators, all of us are. We're victims, all of us are. It's all covered. So in the eyes of God, God sees a world saturated with God's glory. Ephesians 1.11. He sees the end of the story. We don't. We see Syria and nerve gas and terror and human trafficking and young women trapped in sexual slavery and homelessness and drug addiction and mental illness. We see. What God sees is the end of the story and God is saying to Peter, look through the lens of the end. Everyone is holy. Everyone. <laughs> now, here's the, here's the deal. I mean, you're listening, you go, I want to believe that, but I'm afraid if I call you holy, you're going to think I'm um, justifying your sin. So I know I can't call you. I'm not going to. I'm going to call you holy because I don't want to just... I mean, I know you're... I, I see you're broken, right? Well, holiness and brokenness, friends, uh, can, can coexist. In fact, not just can coexist, but do coexist. Where? In all of us. So are you holy? Yes. Are you clean? Yes. Are you broken? Yes. We, have, we just have a hard time with that for many reasons, because we're fallen, probably because we're Western as well. We have a hard time with that. We're like this. If you're broken, you're not holy because I see you're broken. Look, I see you stuck in sin. You committed adultery. You're, you're, you're party to human trafficking. You, like, you bought an iPhone, <laughs> and the, the way it was made is unjust. You're not holy so, because you're broken. You're not holy. And there's others of us who are like this, oh, no, no, look, I'm holy. I mean, we'd never say that. 
but we do say it. And this is how we say it. We say, you know, here's why. I mean, I'm actually okay. My marriage works. I don't sleep around. I don't, I don't get drunk. I have no traffic violations. I tithe. I go to church. I read my Bible every day. I pray for my neighbors. Like, if, if, there's, if there's clean in the world, I'm squeaky clean. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Master's degree, upwardly mobile, save, hospitable, have my neighbors over for margaritas. It doesn't get any better than this. I'm holy. Right? So here, and that's, that's some of us, and we look at the guy who's homeless in Ballard, and we go, no, out, he, I'm here, he's there. I'm here, he's there. I'm in, he's out. No. We're all holy, and we're all broken. I'll give you a story just to close here. Um, in the early 90s, I was at one of the Bible schools where I teach in, in uh, Colorado, and I teach in Genesis, and I'm going through the story of Jacob and Esau, if you know the story. Jacob's a little effeminate, uh, uh, or appears so in the text, and uh, Esau's pretty, you know, masculine, and so I'm kind of having fun with this, because these are 18-year-olds, and I'm giving Jacob this, this effeminate voice, and then the story, and it gets a lot of laughs, and the story ends, and people leave, except for one student, this guy. He comes up to me afterwards, and he's... he's I said, what do I say? And he goes, would you please never do that again? I said, why? He says, because I'm gay. And this is 2016, but can I just tell you, in 1992 or 93 or whenever it was that this happened to me, this encounter, my paradigm put me to him the way Peter is to this, to this uh, centurion soldier. Like, I was like this. No. <laughs> There's, like... You can't have that orientation and be, and be in this Bible school, in this cup. No. Like, how is this happening? And I didn't say any of that, but I'm thinking it because I'm a Baptist, right? And, and so I go, how? I said, so tell me your story. And this is what he says. I, t- I told my parents. They said, I wouldn't want to see you again. I told my church. They kicked me out. I had nowhere to go but I still want to know God, so I came to Bible school. And I'll just tell you, my head's exploding. At that moment, my, I go, on his own dime, in Bible school, and attracted to people of the same sex. There's a beginning for me of a little bit of a understanding here that my cup is too small. And again, because this is the way we are, I can hear some of you. What are you what's Richard saying? Is he saying something about you know, sexuality? Is this, is this open and affirming? Is this closed and denying? What are we? Oh, no, I'm not even talking about that subject right now. Because this is what I said to him. Oh, your sexuality, there's brokenness in your sexuality? I said, that makes us brothers because I'm broken too. I'm broken too. (laughs) Married, three healthy kids, outwardly squeaky clean, broken. Broken and holy. And if I can be broken and God calls me holy, I wonder if you can be broken and God calls you holy. And by now he's in tears. Because when was he ever called holy? Been a while. Been a while. Do, uh, Do you hear me? 
This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And if God loves that man, and he does, God's interested in that man's transformation just the way, same way God's interested in my transformation. But what's first in the gospel, what's first, what's the foundation of the gospel is this. God's already declared everything's holy. You're, de- you're not even living into your own identity to the extent that you deny your own holiness. Begin to live as the person God says you are, and that is where transformation will occur. So receive God's assessment of you so that you can now live as a person of grace in a broken world, and in the midst of all that grace, God will do a transforming work so that you look more and more and more and more like Jesus, which, by the way, looks like the law that you ran away from years ago. What a gospel. My head's exploding right now just talking about it. More questions? I'm sure more questions. I hope you come back next week. Because you know what happens next week? There's a grand debate in the church on this very subject in Acts 14 and 15. Huge debate. Who's in and who's out? How big should our cup be? We'll talk about it next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have these moments together. Thank you uh, that your cup is not even a cup. It's the whole universe saturated with the glory of God. Beyond comprehension. Not lawlessness. Not license to sin. Wholeness. And an, and an eternal journey of transformation. Would you give us wisdom as we seek to embody this message, this hope, in our city and our world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And as you sing, my prayer this morning is this, that God would speak to you about those people who you're quick to label as unclean or unholy. Is it homelessness? Is it a political candidate? Is it, is it, is it uh, like, what is it for you? Is it, is it, is it a sexual thing? And just remember, what has God said regarding all of us? holy and broken and praying. Let's worship together.